0: Jesus announces the kingdom of heaven, explains who's going to be in it, and establishes the importance of the inner life over the outer life. Oh yeah, and one more thing, we should all be perfect. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Toctrine. Welcome to Gospel Doctrine. As always, should you care to email the show or contact me, please email at gt at or contact us on our from our Facebook page. Today we discuss Matthew chapter 5 and Luke chapter 6, the so-called uh, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, which is the which is basically Jesus beginning his ministry in earnest. So this is the first chapter that deals with uh the actual teachings of Jesus and I, I as a personal note i should say this is the lesson that i have prepared the most content for usually i well i shouldn't say usually in the past i i used to prepare on a single side of a single sheet of paper with a with a thick uh a thick nibbed pen and my my pen point has gotten finer and finer as i have done the podcast over the last few months and I've gone from one side of the sheet to two sides of the sheet, but uh, this for this episode, I have five very tightly written pages prepared, and I and I still feel like i'm I'm leaving most of it out. There is so much content packed into these short chapters that I feel like um, if you were to take simply Matthew chapter five, six, and seven and teach about them every week. I feel like you could never stop. By the time you had to start over again and, and talk about what you'd talked about the first time, people would have forgotten it. That's how much there is going on in these chapters, and I, I feel really humbled uh, to uh, more than I have at any point in in the last several episodes to address what's going on in the scriptures, um, and I and I've I felt. A little bit inadequate to the task of relaying the Savior's words, the Savior's direct words. Um, very, very humbled by what the the prospect of, of today's episode. And so, let me say on a personal note that um, I feel a lot of love as I prepare these these lessons every week. I feel a lot of love for the scriptures. It it gives me an opportunity to allow that love to flow through me. And those of you that have contacted me, uh, be it with a question for one of the episodes or in person, just to relay your the fact that you're listening or via text message or on Facebook or via email, I feel love for you as well. I feel, I want to feel love for, for those of you who are listening and those of you who have contacted me. Um, I... that has allowed me to feel the love flow through me for somebody else who also has an enthusiasm for the scriptures. Because I know you wouldn't be listening to this podcast unless you wanted to feel the same thing that I feel for the scriptures. And I'm really grateful for that. So I'm grateful for the love that we share for the scriptures. And uh, for those of you that allow me to put a, a name or a face to the people who are on the other side of this microphone because otherwise uh, it's hard for me to imagine that there really is anybody there and then I I can't feel any love for anyone and this this podcast doesn't exist without love and uh, at no time is that going to be more clear than today so Jesus um, I'm just going to jump right in <laughs> It's a, it's a monumental task as you'll see I'm going to talk very quickly as quickly as I can uh, and and still maintain the the spirit hopefully but uh, jesus begins what what would become what you might think of as his stump speech um in matthew chapter 5 so a stump speech for a politician is where the, the politician let's say you're running for president um a candidate would travel from city to city and it's it's a it's called a stump speech because they'd stand up on a stump and deliver the same speech in town after town. Let's say you were a reporter covering this candidate and followed him from town to town. You would hear the same speech with minor changes in every city. And this is kind of what Jesus is doing with the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain. You notice that Matthew and Luke have different settings for what are essentially the same teachings, what is very similar in in content. Um, And that doesn't mean that this was... Something that became wrote to Jesus. What it basically means is that this this message. Uh, there are people who believe that these uh, these two chapters are describing the same event, and that's entirely possible. Um, I choose to believe, and also based on what we read in the Book of Mormon, Jesus gave the same essentially the same sermon. It's called the Sermon at the Temple by Mormon scholar by uh, Latter Day Saint scholars, and so the this content, these lessons, were delivered by Jesus on at least more than one occasion, and possibly on several occasions throughout his ministry. And in Matthew, it's clear that this, the very first thing that Jesus taught was the the Sermon on the Mount. These, these were his first teachings. So the only thing that comes before this—now in Luke, there are some also some teachings about the Sabbath that come before it, that Jesus teaches he's— He's the Lord of the Sabbath, and he understands the commandments better than the scribes and Pharisees, which actually fits in with the content, that, uh, the content of the sermon itself. But in Matthew, the only teaching that comes before the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, follow me to the disciples, and then saying, repent. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So already Jesus is involved in preaching about the kingdom. And he's saying, and at hand means nearby or close. Jesus is saying, the kingdom of heaven is close. And then he begins, then, then Matthew begins right away relating the story of the Sermon on the Mount. So what does it mean? If, and and this, this word should be very closely tied in your mind to whenever you think of Jesus, you should think, what did Jesus teach about? The word kingdom should come first and foremost to your mind, because that was always on Jesus's lips. In almost every occasion in which he teaches people he hasn't seen before, he talks about the kingdom, and this, and, we, and we've talked about it a few times before, as well, and we've called it the upside down kingdom, and, and this is where we're going to explain exactly what that means. So the the kingdom of heaven, first of all, is Jesus's allusion to the Old Testament, much like uh, like much of what Jesus says. Uh, this this teaching is a very clear allusion to part of the Old Testament. So if you if you have your scriptures you can open to Exodus chapter 19 and you'll recall that after the Israelites have fled across the desert they've been they've gone through the Red Sea and they've made it all the way to Sinai and Moses is about to deliver the Ten Commandments and God, personally appears to Moses and everyone is told to stay away from the mountain. There's very clear boundaries set up. If you cross them, you'll be smitten unto death. And then the Lord delivers this is a this is a huge, very dramatic event in the history of Israel. It is the defining moment of the nation of Israel. And God says to Israel personally says, I have I have lifted you out of Egypt on eagle's wings you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I, so now we're in Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bear you on eagle's wings, brought you unto myself, now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me, you remember, we, if you, if you go back to this lesson, the word is segula, you can learn more about what a peculiar treasure means, you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, ye shall be a to me, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I've I've used these words a lot of times as well. So this is God telling Israel what kind of kingdom they are, and uh, so so God delivers these words to Moses. Moses delivers the words to Israel, and then God says very clearly, "You have to you have to keep my covenant." And in the very next chapter, Exodus twenty, He delivers the Ten Command Commandments, and then follows it with uh 603 more so the the entire law of Moses is the covenant that is the old testament the defining moment of the old testament is this this vision on mount sinai and the delivering of this charge to the israelites that they're what kind of kingdom they're going to be and everybody present at the sermon on the mount was aware of this context And so when Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, they're thinking of the kingdom. They're they're thinking, okay, the kingdom of heaven includes priests and holy people, because God said he wants Israel to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what are we thinking? We're thinking that the the kingdom includes maybe the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the high priests in the temple, but what has Jesus been doing up until this point? He's been having dinner with publicans these these tax collectors these terrible sinners probably not even keeping the all of the prescriptions in the Talmud that surround the law of Moses with a hedge where you can't not only can you not disobey the law of Moses but you you are kept from even being able to contemplate it by other commandments that protect you from the law of Moses and these publicans aren't doing that and There are prostitutes and sex workers present. There there are people of all kinds of sinful walks of life that Jesus is having dinner with and mingling with. And this is offensive to everyone who considers himself important. And what happens? Jesus says to all of these people, follow me. And he finds fishermen, and he, he chooses one of the publicans, and he says, follow me and he calls the 12 apostles from from people that nobody else would have expected there's not a there's not a scribe there's not a priest among them and they follow him into the wilderness and and then this is when Jesus so his his disciples have followed him and this is when he begins in both cases in both accounts he begins this this teaching with the words blessed blessed are they and this is a this is probably a lesser-known fact, but uh, these words blessed, this this Beatitudes, because Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is so famous, we don't recognize as a modern audience that what he was doing was fitting into a well-known Jewish or Hebrew form of teaching. Uh, maybe 150 years before Jesus, there was another Jesus, and he's called Jesus Bensira, and this is recorded in a book called The Wisdom of Bensirah, also known as Ecclesiasticus. So if if we were Catholic, if you were a Catholic, you would have this in your Bible. This is part of what's known as the Apocrypha. And in chapter 25 of, of the book of Ecclesiasticus, Jesus Sira gives his Beatitudes. And it follows a very familiar, what would be to us a very familiar pattern. There are nine blessings. Blessed are they, for example, and, and I'll give you a few examples And you can see what we're talking about, that that, uh, ancient Hebrews would have considered a blessed person. Jesus Ben Sirius says, Blessed is he who lives to see his enemy's downfall. Blessed is he who serves not an inferior. Blessed is he who speaks to attentive ears. So this is the... And then then there are other other beatitudes in in these nine blessings. Blessed is he who is obedient, who fears the God. If you open the book of Psalms, the first... Psalm verse 1 Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. The this kind of thing is found throughout the Psalms. In fact, uh there were a group of what what are called Jewish separatists or or they're they're known as the Essenes. You've heard of for sure of the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Essenes are the are the people who separated themselves from Jewish society because they looked around and they noticed just how wicked it was and they said uh, this this society is ripe for destruction. In fact, they even prayed for the s- destruction of Hebrew society in some cases, and they withdrew to a place called Qumran, which was along the Jordan River Valley, and lived in caves. And even they had uh, there's a there's one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. The uh, if you care to look it up, it's four Q five two five, and again nine Beatitudes. Blessed are those who rejoice because of wisdom and do not spread themselves in the way of folly. There's one example of these, of these nine Beatitudes. So what Jesus begins here is a, ve- a very common teaching methodology. Blessed is he that X. And what does it mean to be blessed, right? What does it mean to be blessed? You're favored of God. God is pleased with you. you God is going to prosper you. You're important. You've been recognized by your Father in heaven. And, and Jesus falls within this convention, but, but right away, uh, everyone must have been looking around and saying, what's going on? Because what Jesus says right at the start is, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are reviled, who mourn, who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And righteousness, the, the word that Jesus would have used is, uh, it, it's very prevalent in the Old Testament. And it's closely tied to the idea of justice as well. These are people who, because they're hungering after righteousness, it basically means they have a lack of it in their lives. So what Jesus is describing as he talks about the, the people who are blessed is exactly the opposite of everything that's come before. So let's talk again about the, the wisdom of Ben-Sira. Blessed is Blessed is he who lives to see his enemies downfall. Blessed is he who serves not an inferior. Blessed is he who speaks to a attentive ears. So, in other words, when when he stands up to talk, everyone listens. These are important people. This is exactly what uh, the the audience of Jesus would have thought: uh, is that God was talking about when they read the Old Testament and God says, "You you are called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." This would have come the and the Pharisees and the scribes would have seen to it that that it had come to take on the meaning of those people who are important. And what Jesus immediately does is he turns this on its head. And he makes this, this is where Jesus makes his kingdom. He, he defines the kingdom of God as an upside down kingdom. So he's, he's inviting Israel to form a kingdom the way that God did in the Old Testament. But he's inviting all the wrong people. He's inviting these publicans, the sinners, and sex workers, and fishermen, and humble people, and people who don't haven't made their life, their living out of studying the Torah and the Talmud, and he's inviting them into the kingdom, and he's telling them not only not only are you invited into the kingdom, but you're blessed, and this uh, this he 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 must have known their reaction because it he, it went to such an extent that in verse 5 uh, in chapter 5 verse 17 of Matthew Jesus even says think not that i am come to destroy the law and the prophets when he says law he means the torah he's talking about the scriptures and by destroy he means undermine or to to lessen the effect of so he says look i'm not i'm not here to undermine the scriptures that you know the reason jesus would say something like that is they were already, just from the few words that he'd already spoken, they were already thinking, wow, this guy is flying in the face of every convention that we know. He's telling us that that the, the humble of the earth are those who are the most important. So Jesus begins his teaching with the Beatitudes, and we will come back to them. But let's go on at the... Actually, I'm going to skip to the very end, of the entire Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, the, the, the last couple of verses in chapter 7 of Matthew. And the, the way that it's reported is the, the people, they're looking around at the end of his sermon, and it says they're astonished at his doctrine because Jesus taught them like somebody who had authority and not as the scribes. So how, how did the scribes teach? The scribes would constantly... Be reinforcing what they were saying by citations of scripture or by Talmudic references and saying, here's this expert who has said who has supported my interpretation of what I just taught you. Here is this scripture that supports my interpretation. And what does Jesus do? He he speaks what he's saying as if he's not the reader and interpreter of scripture, but the author of scripture. That's what it means to them. To, to say that Jesus taught as one having authority. He has the authority like one of the prophets of old who wrote the scripture. He's telling them the word of God as if it were coming directly from God's mouth. And it's described, the people are described as astonished. And this word can have a number of different meanings. It's also translated as amazed. So you can read this as the same feeling as the, the hymn, I Stand All Amazed, Right, it's the uttermost of of shock. So th- this word means to to strike with shock, to stun. The people were stupefied; they were their jaws were agape. The word astonished is, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast about different words and the and the, the kind of the baggage that these words took on over centuries, and it's really fun to unpack what they might, what alternate meanings they might have than. The ones that we've considered, but there's a word that has the same, has a similar sort of feeling in English, and that word is astonished. That that's just a fun word. And if you wanna, if you wanna perform an exercise sometime, look up that word and find where it appears in the scriptures. Um, But you'll find it in the. Here's one example when. Alma in the Book of Mormon is reunited with his brethren after all the years, and they're just astonished to see each other. And they're and they're even more astonished to find out they're still brethren in the Lord. So it's it's a combination of the absolute extreme of, of surprise and of gratitude and of just stupefaction that God at the blessings of and the mercy of God and the the unexpected nature of some aspect of the gospel. That's what astonishment is, and they're just so astonished that they can't even speak when Jesus is done talking, because he has just, not only has he expounded doctrine to them, but they can tell he's revealed scripture, and it's totally different from anything they would have expected. He's he's talked to them about the kingdom of God, and he said to them, look, God wants a kingdom of people. If you remember, First thing that God did was create man and, and command him to be righteous, and that failed. And then he tried with all mankind, and then that failed, and he had to send the flood. And then he tried with one nation only, and that failed. And that's, and that's what the, the book of Exodus is talking about, Exodus chapter 19. So this is, the kingdom has failed. When God said, I want a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, that, that was an effort that did not work, because Israel was not able to, to live up to the covenant that God gave them. So, the, and, and Jesus would have known that people were aware of all the Hebrew Scriptures, and running throughout what he's saying is this theme that is expounded probably most eloquently in all the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah. So in Jeremiah chapter 31, and I hope you hope you remember that I've cited this this verse a few times, these verses a few times now, Jeremiah teaches that that Yahweh isn't giving up on Israel. So in in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33 and 34, uh, well actually in there, in verse 31: uh, 31, 31, the days come saith the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband to them, saith the Lord. So here's God bringing in not only the kingdom imagery, the covenant uh, idea, but also the marriage idea. This is... In verse 33, this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law, and law is translated in some places as Torah. So I will put my scriptures, I will put my law in their inward parts, and this this inward parts idea is also translated as mind. Okay, so have these have these different meanings in mind as we go. This shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is what God is talking about when he uses marriage imagery between God and the people. He's saying, um, "I will be their God, they shall be my people. We're married in that way. we become one. I'm going to write it in their hearts. The, and and this this next verse is all. It goes a little bit more into detail. They shall no more teach. They, sh- they shall teach no more. Every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, "Know the Lord, know Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them," saith the Lord. For I will forgive. Well, we'll get into this in a minute. So, um, the the Lord, everyone will know Yahweh, and no, there won't be any necessity. That anybody needs to teach about god because god has already placed he's planted his own image he's planted his teachings he's planted his law in the hearts of men this is the covenant that he he promises to establish one day this is the new kind of kingdom that god is going to create according to jeremiah in ezekiel chapter 37 there's something similar so if you remember this is the chapter about dry bones and it's also a chapter that has significance to Latter-day Saints because when Ezekiel is talking about the the gathering of Judah and Joseph, and they'll become they'll become one nation again, they'll become one kingdom again, and this has a this has a hidden meaning that their their scriptures will also be joined. And at the end of this chapter, then uh, after after Ezekiel talks about God creating one nation, then he talks about. There will be a new kingdom. And at the end of uh, Ezekiel 37, in verse 26, Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant, and I will place them and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forevermore. My tabernacle, tabernacle shall also be with them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is the covenant that God is talking about. Whenever he says there's going to be a new covenant, these are the two passages that would occur to any observant Jew of Jesus' time, would be Jeremiah chapter 31 and Ezekiel 37. And, and, and Isaiah makes similar references, but the, it's, it's expressed most clearly in Jeremiah when he says, I will write it in their hearts. And how exactly is God going to do that? What is he going to do that's so different? How is he going to create a people to whom obedience, instead of being a duty... The law of Moses was a law of observations and outward duties and very clear, clearly defined boundaries. And what God is saying is, this is going to change. It's not going to, you're no longer going to obey out of obligation. It's going to be so natural for you. It's, your, your hearts will change. You will be different people once I create this new covenant with you. And the question is, how is God, how, However would God do something like that to change people so profoundly? And the answer is here in Jeremiah thirty-one, in verse thirty four, the part I didn't finish reading. Uh, they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And this is what Jesus has been doing when he begins the Sermon on the Mount, this is the work. That he's been going about doing is inviting these sinners, these terrible sinners to meet with him and to to be to spend time one-on-one with him and then to forgive their sins. This is the work Jesus has been doing and here it is in the in the book of Jeremiah God saying this is, this is how I'm going to write the word on their hearts. So let's talk a, a little bit more about the word that goes on to their hearts. But first of all, understand the, the context for verse 17 when, when uh, Jesus says, I'm not here to undermine the scriptures that you know. I'm not, I haven't come to destroy the law and the prophets. The context of that is Jesus is explaining how to, he, he's going to plant this Torah in our hearts. He's not going to undermine it. He's actually going to make it part of our minds. He's going to put it in our inward parts. And, and write it, actually write it on our hearts. He is doing that exact thing during the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is a perfect example of how the, the, the Torah gets written on our hearts. And so Jesus says, I'm not going to do away with the Torah. What I'm going to do is fulfill it. Not one letter, not one stroke of a pen. That's another way of translating one jot or tittle. So a jot is a letter it can be translated as either a hebrew or a greek letter depending on on how you read it and, and a tittle is a diacritical mark and jesus is saying you're not going to have the slightest stroke of a pen of the of the law of moses is is going to be abrogated until all of it is fulfilled and what does it mean for the for the law to be fulfilled and we'll we'll, we'll talk about that at the towards the end of the of the sermon but basically jesus raises the co- the commandments that have been given into a commandment that actually fully expresses God's original intent in delivering that commandment. It's it's much like if you were learning a new language, and you uh, have been doing drills and vocabulary tests, and and eventually after after months and years at at this, you don't need to practice those those vocabulary words anymore because you've been conversing every day and that in in that way you would have fulfilled those earlier exercises you would have fulfilled the potential of the exercises that you had been working at for so long to learn something entirely new and that's what the law of moses is it's like scales when you're practicing the piano and jesus is now delivering a symphony and he's saying this is the fulfillment of the Torah. Now it's going to be written on your hearts. I'm not doing away with those scales. You would never say, you don't, you don't need the fundamentals of music anymore. You don't need the fundamentals of language anymore. What he's saying is you now have access to the full breadth and the full wealth of everything that these exercises were intended to deliver. I'm not doing away with this, even though it feels like I'm turning the kingdom on its head. In fact, what I'm doing is I'm fulfilling everything. And what's, the, and what's the evidence that that's what Jesus is doing? Well, he spends the, the rest of this chapter talking about, almost the, almost the entirety of the rest of the chapter, talking about the difference between the inward life and the outward life. And exactly what Jeremiah was referring to when he said, I will write it on their inward parts. Um, Incidentally, if you want to understand Jeremiah chapter 31 a little better, um, it it is quoted extensively in the book of Hebrews, and it's just fascinating because Paul. I, I have to imagine that Paul had a similar experience as what happened to Joseph Smith on several occasions when he describes studying a particular passage of the scripture and his eyes are opened. I believe that Paul had a similar experience to that, that around chapter thirty-one of Jeremiah, because if you if you go back um, into Hebrews chapter seven, you just read the the surrounding chapters that surround this quotation of Jeremiah thirty-one, and you and you learn that Paul has understood now. The he 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 spends three chapters and and probably more. I, these are the ones that I read. He spends, he spends these chapters in much of his epistle to the Hebrews. And and recall, this is to the Hebrews. So he's, he's trying to explain to them the need for a new covenant. And the passage in Jeremiah is exactly what he uses to show them why it was so necessary, not only for uh, a Messiah to appear, they all understood that, but for Jesus to be exactly the man that he was and to suffer and die in the way that he did, not just... To appear and to forgive sins, but that Jesus represents us in so many ways that are pointed to by the Old Testament. And Paul explains exactly in, in great detail how the old all of the Old Testament imagery in the temple and the and the sacrifices and the scriptures, how they pointed to Jesus and how Jesus has taken that imagery. And Jesus is not only the great high priest. So Jesus represents the high priest who carries the sins of the people into the into the holy of holies and sprinkles the blood, but Jesus is also the lamb who's on the outside of the temple who dies for those sins and whose blood it is, and Jesus is also the temple itself, and it's, it's just so powerful and so amazing and so profound the way that Paul explains this that and it all centers around the quotation of these cha- of these verses in Jeremiah chapter 31. And, G- and he says in uh, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, If the first covenant had been faultless, there should no place have been sought for the second. But in other words, if, if the Old Testament, then covenant and testament are the same word. If the Old Testament was perfect, we wouldn't have needed a New Testament. But Jesus himself used the phrase, this is the New Testament. When he, when he gave his disciples at the Last Supper, he, so he gave them the sacrament. And he said, this is the New Testament in my blood. This is the New Covenant. And the, the Sinai of the New Testament, this is, this is really fascinating. When, when God and in, in Mount Sinai said to the, the Israelites, you are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, That was the Old Testament. Here's my covenant with you. The equivalent experience in the New Testament is right here in in Matthew chapter 5. It is the Sermon on the Mount. This is when Jesus is saying, here is what kind of kingdom you will be. Instead of a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, this is what kind of kingdom you're going to be. You're going to be a kingdom of the inward ordinances. You're going to be a kingdom where you fulfill the law of Moses. Instead of just... Outwardly obeying these commandments, and here's my covenant, and then he follows it, very similar to what Yahweh did in the Old Testament by saying, "I have brought you out of of Egypt on eagles' wings, you're going to be a peculiar people unto me, and you're, I'm going to be your God; you will be my people. So we're married in this way; we're going to become one. And here's my covenant. And Jesus is saying, blessed." In other words, you're going to be favored. You're going to, God is with you. God is going to be paying attention to you. You're going to be blessed of the Lord if you're one of these kind of people, the wrong kind of people. And here is my covenant. Here are the commandments. You're going to take these commandments that you've had of olden time, and we're going to fulfill them. And God and and Jesus creates a new kingdom out of the people. Everyone that heard him in all of the various ways in which he delivered this sermon, everyone who heard him do it. He creates a kingdom from those people. And that is the new nation of Israel. Those are his people and he is their God. This is the marriage that Jesus created between God and man. And he continues that imagery. In chapter 6 of Matthew, he says, "The if you, if you seek for the things of God first, then then all things shall be added unto you. If you you seek first the kingdom of God before seeking riches, then the richness of the world shall be yours, and I shall be your God, That is implied. And if you ask and receive in Matthew chapter 7, if you ask, you shall receive. If you will treat everyone, I'm going to sum up every commandment by saying, if you'll treat everyone the way you want to be treated, then... I will treat you like a father treats a son and give you good gifts because you know how to give good gifts to your children. And I also, you're evil and I'm good, right? You're, you're mortal man, you're fallen man, but I, God the Father, am. I, I know Jesus is saying the Father being, being perfect. How much better does he know how to give you a good gift? He's going to be your God. So if you'll be his people, he'll be your God. It's very clear that Jesus is creating a new Sinai. He's creating a new kingdom. And he's been very explicit about this. And this would not have been lost on his audience. They would, have, they would have been... This is the reason why at the end, they're absolutely astonished and they're just stunned. Because what Jesus has done is he's delivered to them an experience similar to what the Israelites experienced on Sinai. Moses comes down from the mountain and says, here are these commandments and you are going to be my people. You're going to be a peculiar treasure unto God you're going to represent God throughout the world that's that's what it meant by the way so Jesus now in in we're back in Mos- in Matthew chapter 5 Jesus says you are the light of the world right the very same message that God said in in Exodus chapter 19 you are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation you are the light of the world so a light that is set on a hill can't be hidden you your works are designed to be seen of everyone. I want you to be a, a priests unto the rest of the world so that you can represent me to them. And they'll see your good works and glorify God who's in heaven. It's the same message in the Old and New Testaments. Christ is duplicating what had happened with the Israelites. And then if you look at what happens with the salt, right? This is where This is where it becomes painfully clear what Jesus is doing. What happens to salt when it loses its savor? It's good for nothing, except it's going to be cast out and trodden under the foot of men. Well, if you were with us during the times that we, the the episodes we spent uh, studying, especially the last part of the Old Testament, then you'll recognize how the Jews were treated when they were exiled and destroyed. They were cast out and trodden under the foot of men. So he's saying to them, you have another chance. The Old Testament was a failed experiment by God to get Israel to be a faithful covenant partner, and now I'm recreating this kingdom. I'm doing what Jeremiah promised, and I'm coming back, and I'm and I'm establishing a new covenant, but instead of creating something that you have to have outside of yourself, this time I'm writing it in your hearts. And the way I'm doing that is by forgiving your sins. And then I'm teaching you that these, that these commandments, they belong more inside of you, than outside of you, and here's the proof. You've heard it said of olden times that you shouldn't murder, but I say, here's the fulfillment of this ancient commandment. If you are angry with your brother, then you are in danger of the judgment. It's it's anger, it's what happens inside. So let's talk a little bit about this internal life, right, This the this evidence that Our hearts are more important than what we do outside. Jesus is saying, I understand that you don't have the urge to wake up and murder someone every day, but let's go upstream of that. Occasionally, murder does happen, right? Let's go upstream of murder. It's violence. What's upstream of that? Well, it's disagreement. What's upstream of that? Conflict. What's upstream of that? This is when you're angry with someone. You get angry with someone, and it's not just, uh, I'm annoyed with you. It's, as he says, if you, go to, if you go to worship and you discover that you have aught that is unresolved with your brother, then you have to leave your gift at the altar, and you have to go take care of it, and then come back and, and offer your gift, and it will be acceptable unto God. He's saying you cannot let your anger linger on. It can't, it can't fester, and we have a word for that in English, for unresolved anger, and that word is resentment. So if we think about the the relationship of resentment to anger, resentment happens when we make a choice to hold on to anger because we want the anger. The anger fuels something inside of us we can't let go of. We don't we don't want to let go of. And what Jesus is saying here is that when we create these lasting angers, these resentments, we are murdering someone in our hearts. Okay. So um, you you may if you're on social media at all you may have uh, you may have read this idea; it's po- it's quite popular lately, which is the that it's it's really cool to mock the sending of thoughts and prayers to someone who's who's in pain, who's suffering. Um, and and this is very this is a very popular idea, especially among younger people. That okay, um, these people have gone through a a tragedy. I'm I'm sending my thoughts and prayers. Yeah, why don't you try sending money instead? Ha ha! Right. The idea is that thoughts and prayers don't matter at all. They don't have any effect. Now, it's true. If you, if you have a thought and a prayer and you stop there, it has far less effect than a single action, right? And so then the assumption is thoughts and prayers are meaningless. And what Jesus is teaching here is that thoughts and prayers are everything. Thoughts and prayers are actions in themselves. Not only do they lead to action, but they are actions. So not only is your murder an action, but the thought that you have before that, that, that you've had a hundred times, the resentment that you created that allowed you to murder someone, every time you murdered them in your heart, that was an action. This is, this is where you're getting yourself into trouble. This is the inward parts I'm writing this law in your heart. I'm not just writing it in your book so you can read it and not murder someone. I'm writing it in your heart so that you will decide to get rid of your anger and your resentments before they exist and before they escalate. There's a particular way that I've put this to myself, and I've never seen, I've never seen this reflected in doctrine or in any official source. And so take it for what it's worth. If you, if you like it, if this idea helps you, then, then keep it. And if not, feel free to throw it away. But several years ago, it occurred to me that we, we can offer prayers in two directions. Our thoughts as we, you know, God commands us to offer prayers throughout the day. We should always have a prayer in our hearts. And that prayer is ascending up continuously to God. God, bless me. Bless the people around me. Prosper my way. Send me those things that I have need of God I'm grateful for what I'm receiving so we're praying to God consciously through, or con- uh, constantly through our pr- through our thoughts. These thoughts become prayers when they're offered to God but there's another direction we can send our thoughts. we can also pray to Satan and that's what that's what a, a lingering thought is that's what a resentment becomes I want evil. To come upon another person. If this person really did me wrong. I really hope they get what's coming to them. Right? This isn't this is a desire that that we choose to indulge and feed that evil will come to another person. It's a prayer to Satan. And this this prayer to Satan is not, I'm grateful. It's I'm a victim. I'm ungrateful for what has happened to me. And Jesus is saying you are offering prayers when you think which direction are you offering those prayers in to me to me this is a useful way to think about my thoughts and so he continues and, and next he goes into lust right he says it, you've, you've heard it written here's the commandment that you got the old covenant the old nation of Israel their covenant was don't commit adultery but I say, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. You all, you all are familiar with this verse. What does it mean? It means that if you... There's, there's a decision that is made at some point. And, and Martin Luther, and I'm paraphrasing, um, he said, look, we don't, have to, we don't have to be so rigorous with this that everyone goes to hell, right? The, there are thoughts that come along and we push them away but i can i can have a bird fly over my head and he 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 sort of likened these thoughts that that come along to birds flying overhead i can i can have a bird flying over my head and have nothing i can do about it but i can prevent that bird from nesting in my hair or biting off my nose and he was talking specifically about lust so that's the idea is that we don't have to um we don't have to engage these thoughts and and feed them, but that's what lust is precisely what Jesus says is if you look at a woman to lust after her, which also means in order to lust after her so if if you have this if this continued look right this stare that that has a duration to it and you are engaging in this stare in order to lust and uh I wish I could spend I could spend an hour on each of the concepts that we've, that we've discussed, each of the verses in this chapter quite easily. And we did spend an hour last year. The lesson is called, Create in Me a Clean Heart. This was the one about the fall of King David. We, and we looked forward at that time to this very verse, right? We were talking about what happens in our hearts when we lust. So if you, wanted, if you want to read more about this, then it, it's such an important topic. And I wish we could spend more time on it today, but we, we just have to touch it sort of briefly, which is, um, look, lust is the decision that, that a sexual desire for someone who is not your covenant partner should linger. I want to continue to feel this desire, and so I'm going to look in order that I can lust. And it exists in, in you know, Jesus specifically mentions what men do when they're looking at women— it exists in women as well, I'm going to incite this desire. I want someone else to feel sexual desire. And this is the stereotypical way in which this would work. But obviously, either sex can engage in either activity. Men can try to incite desire in others through visual stimulation, and women can look at someone in order to feel lust just as easily as a man can. I shouldn't say just as easily, but they can certainly make that choice. And the idea is that we are praying, when we do this, we're praying in the wrong direction. We're hoping that someone else has evil come to them. And, we're, and when God evokes this image of a woman as somebody we can't lust after, he's, he's remembering, he's recalling when Jesus does this, he's recalling the first page of the Bible, which is when we're created in God's image. And you know, it, to me, buried just one layer underneath the surface of this lesson is we, we see other people in God's image until we choose to take their humanity away. And so in the, in the case of violence, we've decided that somebody else is not a person in God's image. It's just somebody who has really ticked me off. And therefore, I can take his humanity away and kill him. And in the case of lust, this is somebody who I'm, I'm willing to take her humanity away and reduce her to a feeling or a body part or a moment in time that I can fantasize about. And then I've taken her humanity away. And this is a person in the image of God. In either case, I've destroyed the image of God and taken somebody's humanity away. And I have to then affect my own belief about my own humanity, I then cannot see myself as someone who is in the image of God. So in the case of anger and in the case of lust, we're destroying, we're undermining the very thing that God has struggled and striven to give us from the beginning, which is a firm sense of our own identity as his children. And when we engage in these behaviors where we're praying in the wrong direction, then we're destroying this belief that we're children of God we can tell ourselves we're children of god but it's 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 harder than that to actually get the belief to stick we have to we have to root out these decisions in which we undermine that belief then it'll become possible to believe when we tell ourselves i am a child of god well why am i why am i undermining the humanity of others if i'm a child of god so is everyone it becomes so much easier to believe when we're praying in the proper direction, when we don't wish evil to come upon other people. But Jesus continues this idea and talks about marriage. And he says, obviously, uh, something similar was going on to with the Israelites as had been going on um, in the time of Jacob. You remember in Jacob chapter 2 when he's talking about, in the Book of Mormon, when he's talking about, um, look, you've, you've broken the hearts of your tender wives by the way you're acting around sexual purity. And Jesus is saying, you're putting away your wives too casually. It's written of olden time that if you want to put your wife away, you have to give her a writing of divorcement. But I say, write this on your hearts. You should not put your wife away casually just because of your own desires. If you've had a, if you've had a, a disintegration of the covenant, that's one thing. That's not of your choosing. But if what you're doing is casually putting that, that bond away, then you are committing adultery, and you're causing other people to commit adultery. It's an awful, awful thing. You're wishing evil upon someone and taking away their humanity. And that's what lust is, and that's what anger is. They're taking. You know, it's possible for lust to also exist within a marriage. Anytime this desire becomes a desire to take rather than to give, it's possible for anger to exist where there's no violence. Anytime there's a taking away in our minds of somebody else's humanity and saying that they don't have a right to an opinion to whatever it was, you know, somebody cut me off on the freeway or whatever. They don't have they don't have a right to live anymore, they don't have a right to exist, they don't have a right to the road. They're they're less human than I am. Can't they see that I'm driving here? So these are these are all desires and, and attempts to take away the humanity and undermine the, the image of God in another person. Years ago, Elder Holland gave a sacrament or gave a conference talk in which he talked about uh, the the nature of lust and the nature of sexual relations. It's called Souls, Symbols and Sacraments, and if you haven't been living in a cave for a long time you've you've probably read it. Uh, and, and here's my paraphrasing of, of what I think was his one of his main ideas with some of my own observations, um, that, that sexual relations between a husband and wife, in much the way that, are, that the sacrament is a, is a renewal of the covenant of baptism, these things are the renewal of the marriage covenant. And to experience that renewal without the covenant itself, it still creates a bond but then the bond is is going to be broken and the easier it becomes to break that bond the less significant the bond is and that bond is meant to be the most significant thing it's meant to actually unite two people as one in much the way that we are united to god and that that's why it's so serious to lust and that's why adultery itself is so serious but and that's why uh casual divorce now obviously there are cases in which divorces is not only justified but necessary. But casual divorce that Jesus is describing is is also a breaking of that bond. And Elder Holland's point was that bond should be kept sacred and be the most important thing. Its sh- its its sanctity should be absolutely preserved in our minds and in our hearts. Next, Jesus talks about something that uh, I think most of us misunderstand, right? Because in the in the days of of Jesus' time and in, in Book of Mormon times, in fact, um, you'll read in the Book of Mormon when, when Nephi swears to Zoram, you know, Zoram, come with us into the wilderness because we don't want you to go back into Jerusalem and tell everyone where we've where we've gone and what happened to Laban. So why don't you come with us into the wilderness? And I will swear unto you, I I will swear as the Lord liveth and as I live, I will swear we will do no harm to you, right? And and this oath was. Was accepted by Zoram. It was such a powerful oath, and and so it was it was acceptable behavior. It was part of the Old Testament. It was part of the Old Covenant that you would swear and perform your oaths. And what Jesus says is, you've heard it said, make sure that you perform all of your oaths. Don't forswear yourself. And and now he says, but I say swear not at all. Look, you've you you've got just one word out of your mouth, which is the truth or not the truth. So say yes, yes, or no, no. But if it's more than that, it comes of evil. And so we we kind of interpret this, well, we don't really swear by those things anymore. So this part of it doesn't apply to me so much. And Jesus is, this is absolutely not true. What Jesus is saying is, here is an inward law for you to write on your hearts. Outwardly, there's perjury. And that, that is the, the utmost manifestation of lying. You've, you've given an oath, it's got legal consequences, it's got moral consequences for people around you, and it's very public. And if you break that sort of an oath, then it carries very heavy consequences for you and others. So don't commit perjury. And But I say, look, you've got a lot of ways in which you're representing yourself to people you you are constantly making representations and you and i both know and mark twain wrote about this it's very interesting he wrote about the way, different ways of lying and he said the the most clumsy the most clumsy kind of liar is the person who's going to just tell a straight lie but a clever liar will mix lies with the truth so that you believe it and there's less to remember but the cleverest liar of all will say things that are absolutely true and still be lying, either because he makes it seem like he's, he's telling the truth, but he makes it seem like it's a lie, so you don't believe it, or he's shading the truth or in what I call lies of emphasis, right? We we minimize something or we we put the the focus of the idea on the wrong thing so that people think that one thing is important and something else isn't and this this is the idea that Jesus is trying to get at here. You've got one word that comes out of your mouth, which is the word that you've said, the impression that you've given. You've sent a message through all kinds of different ways of communication. You have given and and this is this is a difficult lesson for anybody to deliver right? This is hard for me to say because if if you are one of those people listening that know me personally, you know definitely that I, I am far from perfect at this, as with many of the things that Jesus teaches, but it's still important. I cannot shirk my duty in talking about exactly what Jesus means, which is we have a moral obligation to deliver absolute truth in all of the forms of our communication, to so our body language, and the impressions that we give, and the emphasis that we put on things. What you would call in the modern world our spin— what spin do you put on something? Can you spin it so that it's true but it sounds better? Right? And so this is what Jesus is saying is as you go out into the world, you can if you're if you're spinning something, then you've committed perjury in your heart. So you you're angry, you've committed murder in your heart. You're lusting, you've committed adultery in your heart. You're spinning, you've committed perjury in your heart. he's. Can you see how he's writing his Torah? He's not un, He's not undermining the Torah. He's writing it in the hearts of the people listening to him and in the hearts of everyone who reads it. How many thousands, untold thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people have read the Sermon on the Mount since Jesus taught it? Do you understand now how the fulfillment of Jeremiah's Prophecy is taking place. Jesus teaches the sermon, and it goes forth to all humanity. And every time someone reads it, he's writing the Torah on their hearts, and he's saying, this is more than an outward practice. The law of God is an inward practice for you. And if you're not the salt of the earth, then guess what's going to happen to you? Exactly what happened to ancient Israel, which is you have to be cast out and trodden under the foot of men, because that's what happens to covenant partners who aren't faithful. But what I want from you is for you to be the light unto the world so that everyone can see your good works. I need a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Next, Jesus goes into something that's utterly radical, revolutionary, not understandable, totally strange to all of us even today. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you, resist not evil. So if somebody hits you on one side of your face, present the other side of your face and let them hit you there too. If somebody sues you and they win a certain amount of money or they win something, then give them more than they won. If somebody makes you walk a certain distance, walk with them twice the distance. If somebody asks you for something, give it to them. And if somebody borrows from you, tries to borrow from you, turn them not away. Not, not because they might not pay you back. Don't worry about it. Just give it to them. Wow. Wow. So that's the old law, right? An eye for an eye. It's a very good law, a justice, a law of justice. A law of that that's going to get a law of accountability that's going to hold people accountable. If I cost someone an eye, then I have to make up for that. And it's going to be me who makes up for it. The the the, the eye for an eye law was very amazing in its time because before that there was no justice. And what Jesus is saying, yes, that that is a good law and we have to fulfill it now. I'm going to write it in your hearts and the law is resist not evil. Now I wish I could spend an entire hour talking about just this portion because I don't think any of us keep this portion completely and very few of us keep it in any meaningful sense at all, right? This is This is still to us just a revolutionary and radical teaching that we resist not evil and Obviously there are ways in which we could take that saying we have to make sure we're understanding exactly what he meant before we go out there and act on it because obviously we have to resist evil so what does it mean we give we give to everyone anybody who asks us like how long would it take before we had nothing if if I gave to everybody who asked me and I, you know let's say I'm a rich man how long would it be before I was absolutely destitute so what does does Jesus really mean what he what it sounds like he's saying and this this was turning common sense on its head and it's absolutely revolutionary and new to the people who are hearing it and they're stunned stunned and they're dumbfounded and they're stupefied and they're astonished so i'm going to leave this part of the the interpretation of this lesson to you i want to hear what you think it means send me an email com. we'll discuss it in a future episode uh and i wish we could take more time and we will we will discuss it if you if you care to to send in what you think it means and how you are fulfilling this commandment in your life and i don't mean keeping the commandment i mean fulfilling it and jesus ends with with the final one you've heard that it's been said love your love your neighbor but you can hate your enemies i say unto you love your enemies as well this is this is a concept that he illustrated perfectly with the parable of the good Samaritan, right? The the Jews asked him, what's the great commandment of the law? And he said, love God and love your neighbor. Who's our neighbor? And then he gives the parable and he says, you know, there's a Samaritan ha- traveling, or there's a there's a certain man traveling and he's beaten up. And then a, a priest walks by and a Levite walks by and they both pass by on the far side. But then a Samaritan comes along. Somebody you probably has cause to hate this wounded person and he treats him well and he he puts him on his own beast and he takes him to an inn and he pays with it for its own money with his own money who was the neighbor to that person who was injured and Jesus turns the question around he doesn't say who's our neighbor he says who did who treated this guy like a neighbor the point of the question and you know Jesus did this quite often he just He just went straight to what he wanted to say rather than answering the question. His statement could be taken to mean, you're asking the wrong question. It's not who is our neighbor. It's who can we see as our neighbor? And this Samaritan was willing to see somebody who was his enemy as our neighbor. And that's, so obviously Jesus already knew this doctrine when he taught this. So this is probably what he meant, which is love your enemies. In other words, these people that you see as enemies, you can choose to see them differently. You're making a choice. You're sending a thought in, a, in one direction or the other. You're sending a prayer to God or to Satan that evil should befall someone or good should befall them. You can choose. If you have an enemy, you can choose how you see them. You can choose who's your neighbor. You can make neighbors out of enemies if you want. Don't Don't the publicans, don't these terrible tax collectors that you all hate Don't they treat their friends well? Of course they do. Where's the reward in that? Here's the hard thing to do. The hard thing to do is to treat your enemies well, is to see them differently, to see them the way that God sees them, to restore their humanity, to put back the image of God that was taken away when you became enemies. So this is what God is doing, is he's taking us back to the creation When he said to Adam and Eve, you are created in the image of God, now go forth and reign. I want want kings and priests and queens and priestesses all across the earth to rule and reign. You're all in the image of God. And we're, we're putting each other back in that royal household when we restore the image of God and when we choose to see each other the way God sees us, in his image. Then comes this, this very, very, this most challenging of verses in this entire chapter. Be ye, therefore, perfect. Now, this is hard because a lot of people take this and they think, man, I, I, I really can't screw any of this up. And guess what? You're guaranteed today, even, that you're going to screw some part of this up that Jesus just commanded you to do. And you're going to get it wrong. And then at the bottom he says, "Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect." Be be just like God, would you? And he fully expects us to do what he's talking about. Well, there's a couple of things. First is uh, there's a wonderful conference talk. Be ye therefore perfect eventually, and I encourage you to read that. It it's all about how we can have mercy on our own, on ourselves, and on our own efforts in this regard. But secondly, the two words, First, the the first word is therefore, and the second word is perfect. We'll we'll take him in reverse order. So when Jesus says you're going to be perfect, what he means is be whole. In other words, don't, don't live. Don't live the law, the old law alone, but be whole. Fulfill that law and live the inward as well as the outward law. And the word therefore means that something before what he just said is supporting this sentence. So take everything that he's just taught you in this chapter, okay? Look, I've, I've told you about the old law, but here is how you fulfill it. Here's how you take the outward law and write it on your hearts. And be therefore whole. In other words, Take all these things and make sure that you're giving the importance on the inward life that it deserves. Don't be a partial person who's obeying part of the law, the unfulfilled law. Be a whole person who is taking the Torah and writing it on your hearts. Now, does Jesus sound to you like somebody who's trying to undermine the old law, the Old Testament, in this, in this Sermon on the Mount? Or does he sound to you like somebody who's saying, what a wonderful uh, uh, collection of scripture that we have. And I'm taking the opportunity now to build from that amazing foundation to build something even more powerful. It's exactly what he's doing. Jesus clearly loves and knows the scriptures so much. And he's counting on the fact that the people who are listening to them love and know the scriptures and to them that that was the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. There was enough in the Hebrew Scriptures to elevate them and to bring them to Jesus. So that's the end of chapter five, uh, and and Luke six is very similar. Which but it begins with Jesus, as I said, talking a little bit about the Sabbath and the fact that he's the Lord of the Sabbath, and then the the teachings are a lot similar. So what we're going to do now is we're going to go back to the Beatitudes, and we're gonna we're gonna. Examine them one by one. And that's where we'll conclude. So Jesus just, Jesus begins by talking about who's, who's going to make up this kingdom, this upside-down kingdom of new followers, this new Israel that he's creating out of the worst people in the world, the sinners, and those who are downtrodden and cast out, and those people who are not prospered by God who are not recognized by God. They're not blessed. They're not favored. They're obviously not favored. Everyone who is seen by the, by the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, the elites of their day, as being blessed, that's exactly who these people are not. And, and Jesus makes it very clear, the very first sentence uh, in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now what I want you to do, and this is a, this is a wonderful idea, from uh, a man named Tim Mackey, whom, whom I've referenced many times, um, he found he founded a, a a service called the Bible Project. They make videos about each book in the Bible, and you can understand in five minutes or eight minutes uh, exactly what's going on in a particular book in the Bible. It's really fun. But he's also got a podcast called Exploring My Strange Bible, and uh, listening to that. This is this was his idea that the. The Beatitudes are not to be taken; are not intended to be taken separately. And look at look at this Beatitude. Look at that Beatitude. Hey, which one do I fit? Which am I? Am I somebody who mourns? Am I a poor in spirit? Or am I merciful? What they're meant to be seen as, and the image that he uses that I I like so much is they're meant. These are parts. These are individual shards of glass in a in a stained glass window. And they're, they're meant to be put together and assembled into a single image. So let's talk about each one individually, and then, and then we'll talk about them collectively. So blessed are the poor in spirit, those people who have been cast out, exactly the people we're describing. They're the people who are not recognized by the world. And Jesus starts out his entire discourse by saying, look, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. Here I am, and here is the kingdom of heaven. And who is going to be in it? The poor in spirit. Everyone who's been rejected by the current philosophies of men, the current culture, everyone who's been rejected by that, you are part of the kingdom. Blessed are they that mourn. Now here here we come up against um, another idea that I think is a misconception. And in order to explain it, I'm going to read just a, a quote um, from a man named Stanley Hauerwas. And he's talking about the Beatitudes, and he says, too often these characteristics, like the characteristic of, uh, of mourning or of meekness, too often these characteristics of the blessings have in Christian history been turned into ideals or virtues that we must strive to attain. When we do that, we turn them into formulas that help us gain status and favor with God, which is, of course, precisely the opposite of what Jesus is trying to say. Rather, they are descriptions of the kinds of people to whom Jesus, in fact, first brought the kingdom of God. Nowhere does Jesus tell us we should try to be poor in spirit or mourn all of the time or try to get ourselves persecuted. He simply announces the great surprise that these people who are not significant or honored in their society are precisely the ones who have received the honor to be the first among those called into God's kingdom that's end of quote there so in other words when we when we talk about trying to qualify for the beatitudes we're misunderstanding the beatitudes jesus isn't saying try to be try to be a mournful person so that you can be blessed he's saying when when you are mourning you're already blessed. When you're poor in spirit, when you've been cast out, you're all, when you feel like you're an outsider, you're already blessed. And what is somebody who's meek? So, so mourning, we'll talk about what mourning is in, a little bit more in just a minute. What is somebody who's meek? It's somebody who considers himself unimportant. It's somebody who says, there are a lot of important people in this world, but I, but I'm not necessarily one of them. Now, does that mean you're not important? The Bible describes Moses as the meekest man on the face of the earth. And was Moses important? Of course he was. He was extremely important. The idea of meekness is, and Elder Bednar had a talk about meekness, in which he expresses this extremely eloquently. He says, meekness has the, in addition to being humble, it has the additional uh, characteristic that you're willing to receive guidance and direction from those that you that most people wouldn't listen to, that somebody who may be seen by others to be beneath you. Isn't that the opposite of what Jesus Ben Sira said, that it, blessed is he who doesn't have to take instruction or direction from an inferior? And Jesus says, blessed are the meek. Blessed is somebody who doesn't see himself as more important than any other person. Blessed is the person who's, who's stripped of pride. Now, that is something we want to strive for. But in general, these are not things you want to strive for. The next one, same thing. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. We talked about righteousness a little bit. Righteousness in the Old Testament, and Jesus would have been talking with the same context, is uh, it, it carries the connotation that, uh, that it's a state of having right relationships with God and with other people. And so a righteous act is something that it fosters or creates a right relationship. We, we say doing right by people nowadays to kind of mean this idea. There's another word we, that has come into vogue lately, which, which expresses this idea. And that's the, the, the word of connection. The, the idea that we would connect with somebody in truth and, and in honesty and in vulnerability is, is righteousness. That's what righteousness conveys in the Old Testament and here in the New Testament. And so then somebody who hungers and thirsts after right relationships with God and man is not somebody who has right relationships with God and man. It's somebody who feels keenly the lack of right relationships. And, and Jesus promises they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful those people who look around them and they see the lack of right relationships in the lives of the people around them, and they say, I'm going to perform some small act that's going to make up for a little bit of the pain that that person feels. Even if that person's lack of right relationships is in their relationship with me. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. These people who don't care about their status among men, what they care about is seeing God and seeing others the way God sees them, restoring to people the image of God in their own mind. Blessed are the peacemakers. So if there are two parties in conflict in this world, the peacemaker is somebody who's able to to see this conflict and love the people on both sides of it. Now, do peacemakers generally attract good feelings? No. The answer is if if you... If you step in between two people in conflict and you make an attempt to reconcile, you're likely to attract the ire of both sides because you're on neither side. Blessed are ye if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake, right? You're trying to create these these right relationships. Now, do you see how these, these uh, beatitudes, that, do you see how they flow one from the other? First, you understand what righteousness is. Then you understand what meekness is. Then you understand what it means to be merciful Each of these build on the one before it. Now let's go back to mourning. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are those who look around them at the world and are able to see the state of the relationships, the the state of the world, and instead of distracting from it and anesthetizing themselves to the pain of noticing that the world doesn't exist in a state of righteousness, they've chosen to live in that pain and not to check out of a broken world, but to internalize the pain and to feel it from top to bottom the way Jesus did. And to say, I mourn at the state of the world and I'm willing to work, I'm willing to be merciful about it, and I'm willing to be meek about it, I'm willing to be pure in heart about it, I'm willing to, to reconcile, to be a peacemaker about it, and even to be persecuted. So because we love God and, and we're not ashamed of him, we're willing to seek reconciliation We care more about mercy than status. Then we might be persecuted for righteousness' sake. And finally, blessed are those who are reviled and ill-spoken of, persecuted for Christ's sake, because now we're assembling these different shards of glass, and if you look at the completed image, what do you see? Somebody who cares to the utmost about right relationships, that that is willing to fulfill in the sense that we've been talking about in this lesson, to fulfill the nature of of how people ought to behave in those relationships. Somebody who is mournful at the state of wickedness in the world, but is meek, who doesn't see himself as above any other person. Somebody who's merciful, who is motivated to, to mitigate the suffering of those without right relationships. Somebody who's pure in heart, who doesn't care about how men sees him, but cares about seeing God and seeing others the way God sees them. Somebody who's willing to reconcile, be a peacemaker between two people in conflict, who's in fact willing to take all conflict, all of the bad feelings about other people's conflict upon himself. Somebody who's willing to be persecuted for the sake of those right relationships and create them between God and man. And he's willing, in fact, to be tortured and die for it. Do you understand that the death of Jesus was not the unfortunate result of his failed attempt to help the world and to teach it a better way to live? The death of Jesus is the way he epitomized the values of the kingdom. Jesus says, here you are, you're a new nation. This is a new covenant. And I'm going to show you the way to enter the kingdom. Blessed are ye if you do all of these things. Be perfect in all of these things. And when Jesus shows up in the Book of Mormon to teach this lesson again, he says, not only be perfect in the way that the Father is perfect, but be perfect in the way that I am perfect, because I have now fulfilled, I have taken the basic principle of each of these beatitudes and I have raised it to its utmost and epitomized each of them, and exemplified them for you in a perfect way. And in doing so, I have become not only the most blessed of all people, but the person who can create blessedness among all of you. So Jesus' death is very, very good news for all of us, because he is the ultimate peacemaker, he's the ultimate one who can reconcile us, and we don't—we don't need to seek. This is the, this is the other good news. We don't need to seek to have all of these attributes. We don't need to seek to be mourning. What what happens is when we feel the love of God. What Jesus does is he arrives in our lives and in our hearts, and he says, "The good news is this: You're already one of the blessed because you have had this desire. You've had me touch your heart, and." All I'm doing is pointing out that you already fit within this definition. If you have felt my call, then you're one of the blessed. You don't have to work to be one of these outcasts. I'm here to tell you the outcasts are accepted into the kingdom. And if you come unto me and follow me, I can heal you. I can write the Torah on your heart. I can change you by forgiving